Welcome to the Explore Words Discover World podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, join us for a thought-provoking discussion, which draws parallels between the current refugee crisis and the experiences of prophets from the Jewish, Christian and Islamic traditions. Recorded live at the 2023 Bradford Literature Festival, our guest includes Reza Aslan, internationally acclaimed writer, producer and scholar of religions, Bishop Toby Howarth Moya, Afrofusion artist and award-winning interfaith creative producer, and Richard Stroud, MBE. Hi, I'm Toby, Bishop of Bradford, and welcome to City Hall. Isn't it beautiful? So I don't know if anybody's the first time you've been here, but it's some of the best loos in the city. But this room is also pretty good as well. So, um, so I'm Toby, and I'll be your kind of host today as we talk about refugee prophets. One of the ways that religious traditions function really well is that they enable us to locate our little stories, if you like, our stories of ourselves as individuals, as families, as communities, in the bigger story of our faith traditions, and to draw on our faith traditions to give meaning and language and voice to the experiences we have. And one of the particular ways that this work works or ought to be able to work is in relation to one of the great crises facing our time, which is the crisis of refugees. And all of us will be aware of that, the political implications, the human implications of that, um, and the immense suffering and the massive political trauma that is going on around this. So today is about kind of locating that contemporary stuff and our own stories and our own um, heritages, our families, our own histories, and where do we make the links back to refugee prophets, because particularly from the so-called Abrahamic family of religions, so many prophets were in fact refugees. And in fact, Adam was the first refugee um, kicked out of paradise. And so there's so many refugee stories that we can then draw on, and that's really what we're uh, about today. And those prophetic stories have shaped the way our religious communities live and um, and how we engage with the issues that we um, engage in today. You'll presumably already have read the biographies of our panelists, but I just want to say a couple of things about them and how they relate to the, the topic we've got today. So Dr. Reza Aslan um, fled with his family from Iran um, to the US um, at the time of the re revolution and is now... Um, so got a PhD eventually and various other degrees, a scholar particularly of the sociology of religions, history of religions, um, is best-selling author, um, and, um, and, and brings that, that engagement of religion to this, to, to this big topic. Um, Moya, just off the train from London, so we are really thrilled that the train wasn't late, Moya. Uh, and you've got a refugee background yourself, haven't you? So um, Moya um, and with his family came from Mozambique in the civil war there, 
um, to Portugal and from then to, um, to, to the UK. And is a rap artist, hip hop, Afro beats, all sorts, and, and uses your experience and your creativity, particularly to give voice to young people. And, and so he's just been um, with the Bristol Refugee Festival and helping to give a voice to people from all sorts of marginalized backgrounds um, through your music. And if you haven't heard it, it's definitely worth listening to. Um, and Richard, our very own Richard, is a trustee of our very own um, Bradford Synagogue. And your family goes back many years. Your great-grandfather um, was the founder of the Bradford Synagogue and was very instrumental in uh, a lot of the business uh, in, in Bradford from that time. And you've got your own work with young people and doing all sorts of work, but you, you ground us in, in, in Bradford, which is, which is wonderful. So thank you. And you, um, Richard has awarded an MBE last year for services to interfaith in West Yorkshire. So. Great. So we've got about an hour to have a conversation. I'm particularly aware that we are four guys up here and that um, a lot of refugees are women and a lot of the prophets who are like technical prophets we talk about will be men but a lot of the prophetic experience is, is women as well. So I'm kind of looking to you guys to fill in a little bit and all of us to be thinking also through women's perspectives. So please do feel free if you feel like there's a perspective. I'm also aware we're all kind of Abrahamic type people, but there might be Dharmic type people uh, out there, you know, from a Sikh or a Hindu perspective. And, and there are a lot of um, people from other religious backgrounds in Bradford as well. So if you've got a perspective which you don't feel like we're giving, throw us something or wink or wave wildly and we'll get you a, a, a mic and you can bring that perspective in. We'll do that a bit more at the end, but feel free to do that at the beginning as well. So towards, say, quarter to three, we'll start opening it up more to the, to the room. Is that okay? Brilliant. So I'd like to kick off with you, um, Reza, and I'd like you, is there one story of a refugee prophet which has particularly inspired you? Yes, um, you know, just from my own personal tradition, um, you know, when we talk about the, oh, excuse me, the early history of the uh, Islamic community, that is a story that begins not in the prophet's home city of Mecca, but in the city in which he had to flee to as a refugee, the city of Medina. Um, those of you familiar with the story, when, when the prophet first began preaching his uh, message, a message that had profound socioeconomic implications, uh, but whose religious implications were, to put it bluntly, not that unique or that controversial, um, he was, he in his very small community was forced out of the city of his birth and had to flee to a neighboring city called Yathrib. And this was a city that was uh, full of Jewish tribes, uh, um, pre-Islamic uh, tribes, a tribe of what are known as Hanifs, uh, different religious groups, different ethnicities, and I think sort of the story of the, of the prophet and the early formation of Islam that is so often forgotten about by Muslims is the story 
in which those groups open their arms to this group of refugees, yeah. you know, this group of re refugees who had come in and sought truly refuge from attacks that, were, that they were facing in their home city and which had an enormous influence on the way in which the prophet began to think about this um, community that he was forming. It is not an accident that the first direction of prayer for Muslims wasn't Mecca, but Jerusalem. It's not uh, a, uh, a, a coincidence that the first uh, fasting ritual was held on Yom Kippur, uh, not during Ramadan. Um, all of these, I think, are, uh, is, a, is a really incredible story and should be a reminder, yeah. I think, to us of how important the, the very religion of Islam, uh, how much it relies on the idea that there were people who accepted yeah. a, a people without a, a home and gave them a home Brilliant. so that they could become this yeah. grand global religion that Thank they are you. today. Moya, can I go to you, come to you next? Any, any little story that, that you kind of would draw on or that you go to? Um, uh, just following from what uh, the brother was saying, Riza, uh, I was also thinking about the, that, similar, um, that similar journey, but uh, I was even thinking a little bit further back when the, um, <clears throat> the first community, of, uh, the first group of Muslims before they actually went there, the first place that they went to was Abyssinia. Yeah which is modern-day Ethiopia, Ethiopia, Eritrea. And it was really, really interesting that uh, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he, um, he must have had a lot of trust and respect for this Christian king. Yeah. Hence why he, because uh, he knew that he was a righteous king, hence why he encouraged uh, the group of Muslims to travel there. And it consisted, I, I believe it was 11 men and four women. Yeah. And uh, so it kind of makes me think about two things. One, about the journey before you travel to somewhere, a place of safety. And then second of all, once you arrive in a place of safety, because very often we think about, you know, the journey, but what happens when a refugee comes? A lot of times that's when you start unpacking trauma, yeah. unpacking yeah. a lot of experiences, and you try to establish and rebuild your life. So it's really interesting. Another thing that was inspired that, it was that uh, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he encouraged uh, each person who had traveled to Medina al-Munara to kind of pair up with, a per with someone yeah. who lived in, in that location and they became like brothers. Yeah. So again, it, it makes me think about, you know, we were encouraged by government to take in a, yeah. a refugee from Ukraine. And this yeah. is something that Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was doing 1400 yeah. years ago, you know, and the people and they were welcomed and they paired up. And um, each person that received a guest or a refugee, a refugee, he uh, not only did he welcome him into his home, but he split his food yeah. and his earnings. So he really welcomed him. So it was a really good way to kind of build that connection. Fabulous. Yeah. Fabulous. Richard. Well, I suppose Moses. Yeah. The original prophet. And what's incredible with Moses, he never actually got to the promised land. Yeah. He died before arriving in Israel. Um, the other interesting thing, I think, about all these prophets is that they're mentioned in the Bible yeah. and in the Quran. 
and Muhammad and Moses particularly are very important prophets in all our religions and we overlook this we look at other things not the important things the things the, we have the, in the common, common. Yeah. Um, and if there's anything at this point in time where people are suffering from racism from terrible terrible things going on in Europe even that we've got to look at the common bonds that we have if we're going to have a dialogue it's all about we all like food we all pray in our own way but we're praying to a God and when we lose that then we get into extraordinary messes yeah. and I think this sort of discussion throws out our common bonds and then you can see that going on particularly with Bradford. Bradford has always been a wonderful city yeah. for accepting refugees and I'm sure we'll get onto that later yeah. but it's being openness and the fact that you're here today you're interested and that gives us all excitement about the future because if you read the papers every day you wouldn't want to get up it's the genuine people out there and there's lots of them who do great things and you're part of that and we're part of that yeah indeed and then i get to i get to come in occasionally but i'm 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 considered a participant host so i so speaking as a christian i think there's something incredibly powerful about Jesus and his family having to flee when he was a baby because the king wanted to kill all the kids in that area who were under two years old. So they had to flee, ended up in Egypt. And as a Christian, to, to feel that that experience of being a refugee is in the heart of God is something incredibly deep for me. Um, and I know, having talked to, to refugees in Bradford um, from, from, a Christ, from the Christ, a Christian tradition, that that's really important for them. But it's also really important, just as you were saying, Moya, in terms of welcoming, and, and, and you, Reza, as well, that, that actually, if, if Jesus went through it, how can we, you know, how can I, as a Christian, turn, turn, turn my back on that? And so that becomes a deeply important um, kind of mot motivation, I think. So we've also had refugee uh, week here. Moya, I want to come back to you in terms of, of you, you were talking a little bit about your, your work um, with, um, with, with, with young people. You've got a great song called Too Much Sauce, all right? Which is not about peri-peri. It's not about peri-peri. And it's about, um, about the voice that young people sometimes don't feel they have, especially coming from a refugee background, or we were talking about um, uh, Roma, traveler communities, some communities which are really marginalized because they're, and they're often coming from quite traumatic backgrounds. How does your work draw on, as it were, this bigger story of faith in giving that voice to some of your people? And, and I'd love, I mean, because the lyrics of, your, of that song are really, are really brilliant. What does, it, what does Too Much Sauce mean? Where does that come in? Okay, so Too Much Sauce, like you said, it's, not, um, it's definitely not about ketchup or mayo <laughs> or chili sauce, but it's, 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 I guess it's slang for um, too much style, too much swagger, too much drip. It's like, and it's really a song um, to kind of empower 
and, and amplify the voices of those who don't have much confidence. Um, funny enough, that song was, uh, this year was nominated uh, in this, year, this year's Eurovision, so it was nominated um, to represent Portugal. And even though I didn't win, for me, it was a massive win because this you is something that... You got pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was something that... It's been very, very, very modest. It's something that's... Um, this competition's been going on since the 1950s, so to have, for the first time, someone nominated for Portugal to, that comes from an African background, a refugee, a hip-hop artist, and is speaking, addressing... And, and representing the voice of refugees, um, it had such an impact because I received so many messages right. from people from those backgrounds who felt that their voices were being heard. So it's really, really important for me to kind of deliver work that supports that voice, hence why I do these projects. Yeah, yeah. that's fantastic. Reza, you are doing similar work in a different, more kind of academic, but, but also broadcasting role. How does that work? Well, you probably wouldn't be surprised to hear that the United States, despite its vaunted, you know, self-ascribed status as a nation of immigrants, is not all that friendly uh, to immigrants or to refugees. Certainly, um, over the, the previous administration, which essentially put an end to our refugee program altogether, despite the fact that it is actually American law, established American law, that any individual who reaches the shores of the United States has legally the right to instantly um, uh, ask for asylum. We have gone through enormous <laughs> lengths to try to avoid that by, for instance, forcing them to stop a few feet before the border or forcing them to go elsewhere and ask for asylum so that we don't have to immediately give it to them, et cetera, et cetera. We've come up with a lot of these answers. And so for me, over the last few years, I've been trying very hard to think about how I can affect the way that Americans think about uh, refugees. And I happen to be someone who truly believes in the power of pop culture and television. Television especially, I think, is probably the greatest uh, tool for social change in the history of the world. Um, and so over the last few years, I've, as a producer, I produce some TV shows and films um, in, in the US, um, created this television show which was about an Afghan refugee. And it was a you know, 30 minute silly sitcom, uh, very deliberately you know, geared for like the sort of <laughs> lowest common denominator audience um, and pumped into uh, the, the homes of Midwesterners, you know, the, the Trump supporters basic, basically. Um, to see if there was a way, if they were to see you know, a ref an Afghan refugee on television, mm. just being a normal person, mm. if that could actually affect them. And we were talking a little bit about this before. I think what the things I'm, I'm most proud about is the way in which that fictional character that we created became so real for so many millions of Americans that in the middle of the show, when the United States 
just suddenly withdrew its military from Afghanistan and suddenly there were hundreds of thousands of Afghan refugees fleeing the Taliban, there was this concerted call from the conservative parts of the American public to allow the Afghans in. Not anyone else, <laughs> mind you, but just the Afghans, you know, that we, we've seen, you know, Afghans, we, we understand, you know, their story a little bit better, and so they're okay. Um, and it worked. We actually, uh, even with the, the Trump administration, um, got them to dramatically speed up the process for bringing Afghan refugees into the country. And it's just, again, a yeah. reminder of how important it is to just see a human being as a human being yeah. instead of as a symbol for something. Because you can yeah. fear a symbol, but it's very hard to be afraid of a person who's right in front of you. Yeah. And, and of course, our, our refugee stories hum, humanize because they give us all engagement in those stories. I mean, it's, it's very powerful that the Statue of Liberty faces towards Europe, isn't it? as long as you're not Irish or <laughs> Catholic or Jewish or, well, so, but, but it, it's, it's, it's other groups and it's kind of widening that, isn't it? And so part of our, of our using our religious heritage is to humanize um, one another. Richard, the story of Jewish exile is a, ma well, it's a massive part of Jewish history, isn't it? It is Jewish history, yeah, absolutely. How, how, has that, how has that shaped your own family history? Um, well, interestingly, my great-grandfather came to Bradford as a German refugee. There was anti-Semitism at that time in Germany. Um, the Jewish merchants, textile merchants, weren't very comfortable. They were buying from Bradford. They found that Bradford was very welcoming. Bradford was the center of the textile industry in those days. It was in the middle of the Industrial Revolution. And they came and they opened up their warehouses. Little Germany, I'm sure you know. That's where they settled and built these magnificent merchants and helped the textile industry, which was doing very well, but being plain fabrics, selling to the, what was the MOD or whatever, the Department of War in those days, and to um, the Empire. Mm -hmm. um, and the German merchants came here and designed and developed the, the, the clothing, and they wanted a synagogue. And they were not orthodox, they wanted a synagogue that uh, they could understand the language. I, mean, I always say to my Muslim friends, you go and pray in Arabic, you don't understand it. We play, pray in Hebrew, we don't understand it. But a lot of it was in German and in English. And um, he got those people to understand that you're getting something out of Bradford, you've got to put something back. And we've got to start building Bradford. In those days, they spent some of their money, and they made a lot of money in those days, on the grammar school, the hospitals, seamen homes, all these things were done with mm. those traders putting mm. things back. And that's what I say to all people who come to Bradford, you come here, you get refuge, but 
you get satisfaction from putting something back. There's a, there's a wonderful uh, letter from a refugee prophet. So Jeremiah was a prophet to the Jewish people when they were in exile in Babylon. And you know, you know the, the, the song by the, by the rivers of Babylon, you know, where we sat down and we wept. And they were, and, and the exiles were saying, how do we live in exile? And he wrote this letter where he said, God wants you to get stuck into the place where you are, build houses, plant gardens, and work and pray for the peace, for the shalom, for the salam of the city in which you live, because in that peace, you will find your peace. And I found that personally a huge inspiration, in a sense, from a refugee prophet, that that sense which the Jewish community has done wherever you've been, even at huge cost of actually coming here, settling, and then putting back and engaging in the peace and prosperity of the city of Bradford or wherever, um, as Joseph Strauss did, um, and then finding, finding that peace um, available for, for, for everybody. What are other ways in which we can kind of draw a particular line, if you like. I'm looking at you, kind of our, our, our resident scholar of religion, Theresa. The, the particular ways in which we can draw a line between that experience of a refugee prophet and our experience today, how we think about how we engage with the issues around refugees today. Well, I think to me, the biggest issue is the way in which when we hear the term refugee or when we hear about refugees, um, there's a very particular emotion that arises within us. And that emotion, unfortunately, isn't empathy. It's, at best, sympathy, right? It's that we feel sorry for them, those of us who have hearts. Uh, <laughs> we feel sorry for them. And this is okay. I, by no means am I, am I criticizing sympathy, of course. But to tell you a, just kind of a personal story, when, when my family fled Iran, we came to the United States, not as refugees. Uh, we came because my father managed to get a student visa. And that allowed him to study at a university for a year. But then the student visa ran out. The year was finished. And we had the opportunity at that point to uh, go back and re-identify ourselves as refugees so that we could take advantage of the asylum laws and we could stay. And instead, what my father decided consciously was to just be illegal. And so for the next decade, we were illegal. You know, we were illegal aliens or undocumented aliens. Um, and, and then after a, a long decade, we went through the process of getting um, uh, the green card status, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And 
if you talk to my father about why would you do that, you know, there was this path available to you to just simply claim refugee status. This was at a time in which the U.S. and Iran were greatly at odds. It was 444 days in which Americans were being held hostage in Iran. It was a very easy thing to argue that being sent back to Iran would be a danger, which is really all you need to really argue. Um, and so therefore, you know, we need to stay here. But for my father, he, ref he couldn't accept the idea that someone would feel sorry for him, yeah. right? That if I say I'm a refugee, then what I'm asking for is sympathy, and I don't want sympathy. I don't want it. I'm fine. I'm an intelligent man. I've got a great job. We have our own house. Yes, we're illegal, and at any moment we could be seized and thrown back. But I'd rather have that, that threat, than sympathy. And I think about that a lot, right? About the way in which we confront it, and this sort of in intriguing way of thinking about, you know, the great prophets as themselves uh, refugees, right? We don't feel sympathy for Moses. We don't feel sympathy for Jesus. We don't feel sympathy for Muhammad. Why? Because, well, they're these incredible figures, right? Um, and I wonder if there is a way yeah. in which we can, we well-meaning individuals, start to think differently when we see the boatload of individuals yeah. showing up at the shores, you know, that we think not oh, I feel so bad for these people, but these are human beings, intelligent, educated, talented, and the only reason that they are here is because a century and a half ago, someone, some outsider, drew a random series of lines on a map and said, this is now a nation. Get used to it, figure it out. Um, and that these borders, that these boundaries that separate us are artificial, they're fabricated, they're nonsense, they're made up. So the person who shows up on the shore is not a refugee because the borders that they crossed are arbitrary. They don't really exist. And so how would we think about them? in, in those terms? And so the, the prophetic experience then throws a question mark up against against that yeah precisely that yeah. yeah but it's tough isn't it i mean your experience um i don't know if probably some of us have have seen the the other um series mo mm -hmm. at Pal palestinian refugee in in texas which is wonderful um but there are demons and uh, coming back to another of your of your songs um moya battle my demons why did you make that song? Because that's, that's tough stuff. That's about the cost, particularly of young people, about living in this no man's land, living, yeah. Tell us a little bit about why you wrote that song and, and how it's engaged with people. Yeah, it's exactly about that and the experiences that one uh, faces, especially when it comes to mental health, um, personally, I, um, when I fled Mozambique, uh, the first place that I lived in was an abandoned building in Lisbon, which was a, 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 it was supposed to be a hospital that never got finished. 
So a lot of the migrant communities squatted there. And um, I mean, some of the, yeah, some of the experiences there were horrific. And as a child, you don't realize because that's all you know, that's all you see. But I remember us not really having toys. And um, the game that we would play the most is actually doctors and nurses. Mm -hmm. The reason being is because we would see so much heroin needles. There were so many heroin needles that we would play doctors and nurses, but at the time, like, I didn't know. And then only after, and I started actually seeing members from my community and, and some of them turning to alcohol, some of them drugs, some of them becoming extremely fit, fit, uh, violent in their homes. So all of those things, you know, every day we're, we're, we're meeting people, we're meeting people, uh, whether it's refugees, you know, and, and we don't know what people are going through. So it's about trying to put ourselves in their position and understanding that everyone's got a story and being able to be more uh, empathetic to them. Tell us a little bit about some of the um, people in, in Kent you're working with a project, um, particularly with Roma. Yeah, yeah. so it, that project specifically was um, a project I was running in Kent with the Roma community. And um, initially, the... The, the people who funded this project said they were struggling to kind of engage with the youth. And once I went there and we provided a safe space, it was just like every single week, it was just filled with these amazingly talented women, young women that were just creating this beautiful music, had amazing voices, and they would just started writing stuff really to celebrate their culture, their history but also to start unpacking some of that trauma. Mm. So I feel it is our duty not mm. to just provide a, a, a place of refuge, but to kind mm. of provide a, a place where they can yeah. start really unpacking that. Um, I'm aware, as I said at the beginning, so we're, all, we're all, all men up here. I'd love to hear any women in the audience who have, who, who have particular figures in the prophetic stories who have inspired you, or you, um, who, particularly f from a refugee perspective, who, who, who you can kind of think of? Because we've, um, we've, we've talked a lot about people like Moses or Jesus or, or, or the prophet Muhammad. Um, any, anybody want to, want to share with us stories of, of women? I'm not looking, I'm not, ask you to say this person was a prophet okay but from the prophet if I keep the the noun I give you the adjective let's have women from the prophetic tradition I mean I've mentioned kind of Mary but other other are there other people who uh, who you'd yeah Hagar. Hagar I've been thinking about Hagar quite a lot because of course it's been Eid al-Adha just this past week and that's the, that's the story of the, of the Hajj. And part of that story, of course, is Hagar, um, Hajar, running between the two, the two mountains to, um, to, to looking, looking for water. So that's very much a kind of an experience, a kind of, sort of refugee, she was a refugee experience, wasn't she? She, she, was, she was forced out um, and God provided for her. Yeah, that, that's very powerful. Anybody else? Yeah, in the Quranic tradition, Moses' mother. Yes. It's not a migration as such, but she lets her son go. And I think something about that 
letting go into the unknown and being adrift um, and what it takes because the Quran specifically says and we strengthened her heart right. that moment of really going into the unknown and not knowing whether you're going to survive or your child will survive or not yeah. is remarkable to me one of the things that I um, that I'm, re I'm really interested in in terms of the Islamic tradition is the resources within the Islamic tradition for being a minority because a lot of Islamic theology has grown up in a context where Muslims have had power but particularly if we think about the Shia tradition for example um, we, you've just done a, a your, your previous um, talk we've been working Reza, very hard here was was all about Imam Hussein and the Battle of Karbala and that, in a sense, minority tradition within Islam, which is also very respected within a lot of the Muslim traditions here in Bradford, particularly from the Borelvi community, around, um, uh, around a, a, a narrative of suffering, I guess, is what, what it comes down to. Talk us through a, a little bit about those, in a sense, prophetic, I mean, call Imam Hussein a prophet, but but those, those resources from within the tradition of being a minority and experiences suffering? Well, I think what's, what's always been fascinating to me as a, as a historian and thinking about the way in which Shiism developed as a distinct religious movement is that as a persecuted minority, it had no choice but to rely on not just the hospitality of these um, uh, conquered lands and conquered people. Um, just to go back just a little bit, so as the Arab Empire is expanding um, in the first century and a half, it is a very distinctly Arabocentric empire. Um, I think that there's this idea that you, you know, you hear sometimes from some of these, you know, so-called scholars about how Islam spread by the sword and the historical fact of it is that not only did it not spread by the sword, but during the first 150 years of the Islamic empire, uh, it was extraordinarily difficult to convert to Islam. In fact, the empire went through great lengths to put obstacles in the way of full conversion. For instance, if you weren't an Arab, you had to find an Arab who would take you on as a client before you could then convert to Islam. And there's a very simple reason for this, which is that you paid fewer taxes if you were Muslim than if you were not a Muslim or if you were a protected person. And so this other strain of Islam, this tiny minority strain of Islam that we now refer to as Shiism, in every, every one of these newly conquered lands began to marry itself very clearly to other traditions. So when a Christian land was conquered, the Shia community sort of started marrying itself to those Christians and adopting their practices, even their religious traditions. In fact, the sort of overt messianism that uh, characterizes Shia Islam was wholesale borrowed from Christianity. 
if they, when they conquered Iran. The, the Shia uh, community married itself to the Zoroastrian community and indeed uh, a huge part of the Shia conception of, of dark and light, good and evil, the sort of binary, um, uh, it was borrowed from Zoroastrianism and Manichaeism. Uh, the idea that like the, you know beings made of light, which is what the imams are, right? That was borrowed wholesale from Zoroastrianism and Manichaeism. Same with India, when, when it went into the Indian subcontinent. They married themselves to Hindus and to Buddhists. Um, this was politically a way to differentiate yourself from you know, the imperial religion of the Arabs, but also, to your point, there's a sort of beauty of it, right? Which is that marginal groups connect themselves to other marginal mm. groups and come together and create something brand new together. They, they, they merge their ideas, their cultures, their traditions together, and in doing so, develop something that is new and unique and that can easily be accessed by the, all the different communities. And, and I still see um, shadows of that today yeah. when I think about the way in which mass migration yeah. all around the world has created these new identities, new traditions, new ways of thinking and being. Coming to you, um, Richard, and I'm aware we have a professor here on the front row mm -hmm. who's, um, who, who you started the, um, the, the Department of Semitic Languages at Leeds University. Arabic studies, thank you. Um, I'd love to hear some of, some of the resources within Judaism, particularly for coping with suffering, for coping with being a minority, for coping with, with, with holding your identity in a contested space. You're not a member of the panel, but I'm sure we can get you a microphone. I don't, want to, I don't want to waste your learning. He said he is, of course, I fully agree with it and endorse it. It's absolutely correct. There are a few more things to be added about all the uh, monotheistic religions. Uh, uh, yes, the prophets there, uh, of course, were refugees when they started their career. Uh, the prophet Muhammad, for example, had to leave, as we heard from Reza, had to leave Mecca because of disagreement. People disagreed with him. Yeah. So he moved to Medina. You mentioned the name Yathrib. Yathrib was the previous name of the city of Medina. And then he changed it, Islam changed it to Al-Medina. And so uh, he lived there and he befriended with the Jewish community who lived in Medina. There were three famous tribes of Jews, very successful, and they, uh, he coordinated with them a lot of things. This contact with the Jews was very, very important to the early Islamic uh, development. Uh, the Jews who lived in, in Arabia themselves were refugees because they were expelled by the, by the Babylonians and the Assyrians thousand years before that, and then later by the Romans. Yeah. So they originated from Israel or Palestine, and from there they were expelled by the big, the great power of the time, and therefore they moved to live in Arabia, and became over the years became very successful 
tribes. They adopted the tribal system, which there was current in Arabia before Islam. And they, they um, lots of similarities which you find in Islam and in Judaism are the result of this contact. This contact was very healthy, very important at the time and later on. I, I think that's it. Mm -hmm. In the immortal words of Lin-Manuel Miranda, immigrants, we get the job done. <laughs> um, I just wonder whether we can now open it up a little bit. What are questions that you bring to this whole theme around the crisis of, of, of refugees and the connection that we can draw between um, the stories of prophets and the issues that we're facing today? And you, you may want to direct it to one or, or others, but... Uh. My question's on media, and Reza touched on this about the Afghan sitcom he made. How is it that, you know, we've recently had the drowning of the Titan submersible, yes. and a Barack Obama draw, draws the attention to what we were all feeling. The Greek ship that sank yes. in the Greek waters got less coverage than the Titan submersible. Why is that? And how can we as people discern what the media yeah. tells us? Yeah. Um, I often reflect on refugees and Alan Kurdi, the little boy who washed up on the shore. Yeah. And suddenly everybody became very human. But what is it that dehumanizes the refugees? It was that photograph, wasn't it? Yeah, thank you. Would anybody like to, to comment? On, uh, on what our sister has said, yeah. I think, I think the problem is that our press don't reflect what the majority of people think. They reflect what the minority think. If you talk to most people, they understand. They've probably had people in their own families who've suffered, but the people who shout a lot and, you know, the crazy things, you know, defining men and women, and they take up more time than serious problems. And I think it's only, actually, people are doing something about it. Never gets any publicity. You only have to look at what's going on in Bradford and, you know, the refugees that have come to Bradford, a lot of them have been very successful. They've added to Bradford's character and everything else. That goes on. But the press, in every aspect of life, want to hit you with stuff. And some of it, they do the same old way. So you see a boat, and it could be the same boat, and it's the same narrative, and it's negative. Now, how we change that in a society that has free press, I don't know. But we are ruined by a lot of our press because they don't reflect what we feel. But I think there's something very powerful, isn't there, around um, if, I can, if I can in some ways put myself in that boat and I may be able to do that through, a, through, a, through the experience of a friend or a family member, but I may just be able to do it through the experience of saying, actually, my faith puts me in that boat. Um, and I think that's where a faith voice can be really, really powerful. 
It's, it's, it's a, I, I thought it's really powerful the way, Reza, you talked about the reframing of, you know, you don't talk about vermin, you talk about people. <laughs> um, because we are all people, you know, from a Jewish or Christian perspective, made in the image of God. You know, there are, it's, it's a way, it's, it's using the, the, the religious language or the imagery or those stories to kind of reframe the debate and constantly having to do that. But you yeah. were going to come. Yeah, I wanted to just share something. Um, we're here discussing the inspiration that we draw from different prophets who are refugees. And they inspire individual communities, but I think it's really, really important that we speak to each other and, mm -hmm. and get inspired by each other. Um, I've been involved in multiple interfaith projects for over 15 years. A uh, synagogue that I worked very, very close with was, is West London Synagogue. Um, amazing. Yeah. Amazing, amazing synagogue. Uh, we've delivered a lot of youth programs and stuff. And I remember um, my very close friend, Nick Schlagman, one day he took me to the synagogue and they've got this, it's a beautiful, beautiful prayer space and they've got a beautiful dome. And he was telling me the story about this dome that, you know, um, it, I believe it's actually one of the wealthiest synagogues in the country. So it's like a lot of money was spent like creating this beautiful space. And when you go into it, you're like filled with awe. And uh, during the World War, uh, the synagogue was bombed and the dome was destroyed. So the community came together to kind of fundraise to kind of, uh, you know, to be able to restore the, this beautiful dome. And after they raised the money that they wanted to, they actually spoke to themselves. So they said, look, this is what's going on. Actually, let's not spend that money on the dome and helping people to try, you know, who were going through persecution into wow. UK. So they decided to do that. And one of those children that ended up coming to, uh, who they were able to save um, is the grandfather of my friend, Nick Schlagman, who was taking me to this space. Right. And I was so inspired by it that we decided from that to start doing more social justice projects. So there's one, one a project that we run, it's called um, Feeding Folk, where we now provide around 200 meals to people who are experiencing homelessness across London. But what I mean is like, I was so inspired by that. You shared that story. I told someone else, and it's about yeah. that. Yes, we're inspired by, uh, by uh, amazing prophets, but it's mm -hmm. about us speaking to each other, different faith-based communities coming together and seeing how we can do, what we can do to kind of create that change, to counteract what we're seeing in the media. So it's about the little people kind of coming together. Yeah, can I just uh, add to that? Um, the Bradford Synagogue, which is 150 years old, is built in an Islamic style. Yeah. It's a very interesting building. But we have many members now in Bradford. There's only about 40, and those are mostly my age and over. And when we had a problem with the roof of the synagogue, it was leaking. We haven't a lot of money. We wanted to fund repairs and keep it going because we use it for interfaith work as well. And Rudy Levor, who was a German refugee, he lost most of his family in the Second World War. He was fortunate that his parents got out beforehand. And he believed that, you know, in spite of what had happened, 
people should be brought together. And we approached the Muslim community and we found... Who are all around the synagogue. Yeah, there's yeah. 165,000 Muslims in Bradford and 40 Jews. <laughs> so that's... that's the, and Zulfi Karim, who was then the General Secretary of the Bradford Council of Mosques, fundraised to repair the roof of a synagogue. Now that shows what can be done if we talk to each other and help each other. And I would say that the communities, all the communities, including Hindus, Sikhs, and those who don't have religion, in Bradford, because we've got people like Bishop Toby, who holds his hands open and wants people to be involved. And it works. It works in a quiet way. It's not exciting, it's not... But the fact that you're, we're here, you're here, things are going on all the time. And uh, we've got a king, actually, who has mm. preached this for a long mm. time mm. and laughed at, you know. He wanted to be the protector of all faiths. Um, he is the protector of all faiths because he does it. Yeah. Um, and that's what we should be doing. We, we've had a, a couple of, of great uh, events. We had one in the, in the cathedral for the anniversary of Guru Nanak's birthday. And a big, big celebration in Bradford Cathedral for, for the Sikhs of Bradford. And then the Hindu community had a Christmas celebration in January with Bangra Christmas carols in January. It was fabulous, which I was invited to. Well, there, so was another, there was another thing which is amazing, and that was we had the World Curry Festival. We did, yeah. In the cathedral. In the cathedral. And we were served with chefs from all over the yeah. world coming and eating in the cathedral. Yeah. I mean, that shows... And a big iftar as well in Ramadan. So, yeah, so it's, there are great stories, but you're, you're right, Moya. It's, it's all about connecting, having these conversations together. Sorry, one more question? Um, yes, come on. Um, just a couple of things. So um, when you were talking about the uh, submarine, I, I felt that uh, September the 11th, so yeah. I think at the time I was around 20 years old or something like that. And I remember thinking that lots of horrible things are happening around the world all at the same time. And, and don't get me wrong, what happened in America was absolutely horrible, shocking, and wrong. Um, but there were so many other things that I felt were just being ignored and not brought to light and attention mm. that were equally shocking mm. and worse in some cases. And I've always felt that about when, when countries have gone to war as well, mm. like they've, they've picked and they've chosen the battles mm. that suited them and ignored mm. loads of other people. Because mm. I'm like, mm. Well, there's loads of bad dictators and leaders in the world. Why are you going to take them out? You know, mm. like, well, I, I won't say no more. There's a few countries we can add there. Um, then the other thing I wanted to say, if it's okay. Um, so, I think as well, it's not wrong to draw attention to September the 11th or the submarine. What's wrong is that things aren't given equal attention. Mm -hmm. A bad thing is a bad thing and mm -hmm. deserves time and attention and reflection and help. So it's not one thing's worth talking about more than another. It's like they're all worth talking about. Um, I think one of the things that, as I've, so I've grown up in a, a church background, and 
the two most important commandments, um, well, the most important things in life are based on two statements. And that's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul and your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And actually the loving the refugee, the oppressed, the poor, is synonymous actually with me thinking of Jesus. It's like you can't say you love Jesus or love God and not care about those other people. Because if you're doing that, then it's just a theory. It's always got to be an action. Thank you. Now that's brilliant. And what's what's really interesting is it is that it the Bible then goes very clearly to say because you were refugees, you know, because you were slaves in Egypt, because that was your story, that's why you've got to have a different a different narrative. And I think if something has come most strongly to me through this session. It's about how we have the responsibility as carriers of our different religious narratives of using that to put a different narrative out there, whether that's through, I mean, extraordinary work that you're doing on television or with your hip-hop, neither of which I could, <laughs> I could do. Um, but, but that actually that's, that's something for all of us to be doing, all of us to be carrying that and all of us to be reframing the language of our politics, of our discourse, of our media, um, so that we actually bring, bring that different narrative in around refugees, that we are actually all one, one people, and that um, when we welcome, we don't welcome with pity. We welcome because, you know, I think Mo Farah has done so much for that, isn't it? You're welcoming somebody who could actually then win your country a gold medal. <laughs> you know, it's a very different way of looking at that, isn't it? Um, but that everybody is. So you can have our last word. Come on, let's have, a, have the last word. The first person, as you know, made the way. So the first person who dealt with the subject of uh, prophets and refugees is Christ Himself, who said in the book of Matthew, chapter 13. There's no profit in his own town. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. I think on that note, I think that's really good. Shall we... Um... Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the festival, please subscribe, share this episode with others and leave a rating. Don't forget to mark your calendars as the Bradford Literature Festival returns for its 10th year from 28th of June to the 7th of July 2024.